0: Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Hey, it's Adam Carolla. The greatest time of the year is back. College basketball. That's right. March Madness, March Mania, and March Money. Join in on everyone's favorite game, the Bracket Challenge Contest at betonline.com. AG. Sign up for a free account, receive your 50% welcome bonus, and make your picks. All the early lines for all the games are now available, so don't miss out on any of the action for the next three weeks at betonline.ag, the exclusive partner at Podcast One Sports Net.
1: Brought to you by the all-new crossover Toyota C-H-R. It's edgy, stylish, and fun to drive. Visit toyota.com slash H R to learn more. Embrace the unexpected. This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One.
2: And I'm your host, Steve Bertone. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't in the cover, they easily could be. Today, we have entrepreneur, fellow podcaster, investor, and now author, Jason Calacanis. Uh, Jason, thanks for coming on the show.
3: It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Did I get your name right or did I butcher it? You
3: did perfect, Jason. Calacanis. There's three A's in there. Some people say Calcanis. It's technically Kalakanis. Uh and so but you know, <laughs> when you have a Greek name and you go through Ellis Island, they butcher it. So it turns out my last name is Kali with K's, and it means to have done well or done well in Greek. But when we went through Ellis Island, um they they really didn't uh give the immigrants their say and how their name was spelled. So I literally just told my grandfather, Calacanis, keep moving. And they just wrote it down and pushed him through with the wrong spelling yeah, the- of his name, which I hear from a lot of people who immigrated through Ellis Island. They just had like a certain contempt for people coming in. They're just like, here's your name. Keep moving.
2: Yeah, put a little, yeah, put a little American twist on it. And keep it going. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a Bertone. I'm, I'm a Bertoni. That, uh, that survived somehow.
3: <laughs> yeah. You got lucky.
2: So great. Well, let's talk about this book now. Yeah. So you are, you know, a seasoned angel investor, you know, really busy guy. You know, your, your mantra is all about meeting as many great people as you can, but you took the time and the pain to write a book about what you do. Yeah. Um, what was, what was your motivation? Why kind of put your attention onto the money losing business often of writing books opposed to your, uh, investing career?
3: That's a um, very astute question. I, I've had a book agent for a decade, um, a guy named John Brockman and uh, Max Brockman at the Brockman Agency in New York. And they do a great website called edge.org. And they have all the great scientists, Daniel Dennett, Jared Diamond, uh, Naomi Wolf, um, Sam Harris, just like the world's greatest authors. And somehow, I wound up becoming friends with them. And they represent me. And I, I turned out a lot of books that were offered to me like around blogging or you know just different things I've done in my career uh podcasting etc because Mm -hmm. I just thought you know if I write a book I want to write it about something I'm truly an expert on and that if people read it it's worth their time and I, I see so many people right now are writing books in order to become influencers and I think it's the stupidest trend in the world like I meet a lot of stupid people in my career and It almost seems like the less a person has done, the greater chance they've written a book. And it's like this bizarre negative correlation that happened when publishing became much more open, right? People self publish. Um, And so I was like, unless I can write something where I really feel like it's meaningful and will be valuable 10, 20, 30 years from now, I'm just going to pass. And. When word got out about my angel investing, um, and the specifically the Wall Street Journal wrote a sort of expose on Sequoia's Scout program and they somebody leaked the documents to them. And you know, they found out that this little eight million dollar fund had, you know, two hundred million dollars in returns and it was this incredible outlier on the chart of returns. They started figuring out why was that and it turns out that my Uber investment and my thumbtack investment um were the big pieces of that and uh, also my friend Sam Altman's uh Stripe investment so there were like these three investments that were just crazy outliers and
2: well those are three good ones to have
3: yeah and it turned out i was you know 90% of the fund was my returns 10% was Sam's and you know maybe 1 or 2% were the other ones and it was like this historic vintage portfolio and i just thought about it and i was like you know i've invested in 150 companies there's very few people who've done that in the angel phase uh Ron Conway, Esther Dyson, you know, uh, Chris sock I don't think has done as many but he's done as well or better. And so there's just like a small cohort of people who've done it and I was like I really think that wealth is going to be created differently in the 21st century than in the 20th century and that was the premise of the book. Not just angel investing but wealth creation and you know, growing up in the what I'll call the lower middle class or the you know it massively in debt lower middle class you know which kind of makes you poor in a way um in brooklyn when i was growing up and my family losing everything when their business collapsed to me the ability to change your station in life and move from the middle class to the affluent or from you know poor to middle class i think it's important for society and so I thought this is really the way wealth is going to be created in the 21st century. It's going to be based upon getting on a cap table. I think it's the greatest you know, potential way to jump, if you're willing to do the work, to jump from one category of wealth in society to another, and that the traditional way that probably you and I and many people listening to this program were told was going to be the way is no longer the way. The traditional way and all the books that have been written about wealth creation previously you know they all centered around get a you know a good paying white collar job bring peanut butter and jelly to work don't go out to dinner don't go to the movies don't go on fancy vacations save all your money yeah, don't
2: buy like don't buy don't buy coffee
3: don't buy coffee right make your coffee at home bring it get a thermos and be frugal and then own a home right and that that was the way to die a millionaire if you want to die a millionaire you just you basically just have to be stoic for 30 40 years and you'll die with a million dollars in the bank or two. The problem with that is is um three things have happened that have just totally screwed up that equation. One, people are graduating with fifty to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in student loans. So that's yeah. basically their mortgage. Then the second thing that happened was houses used to be 1.5 two times people's household income. So if you had a household income of seventy-five thousand dollars, you could buy a home for $100,000 or $150,000. Now, uh, if anybody lives in a a city, a major city, they know that it's probably seven to 12 times. So if you live in Manhattan and you and your spouse make 75K each, you have $150,000, you live in Manhattan or Brooklyn, we all know the houses there are 1.5 million. They're 10 times the household income. And
2: that's about a, that's a, that's a closet in Manhattan these days.
3: Right. And in Brooklyn, I think it's like a broom closet. So (laughs) Brooklyn's more expensive, which blows my mind having grown up there. So, and then if you think about white collar jobs, well, we all know what's happening with AI and a lot of the white collar jobs, being a lawyer, being in sales, um, you know, being an analyst, et cetera, maybe even being a journalist or or a reporter. A lot of these jobs are going to be replaced Mm -hmm. in part, uh, by AI and they could be negative, in terms of the salaries and growth to them in relation to things like interest. So anyway, that's the framework I looked at the world. And I said, gee, you know, my kids, I have three daughters. I don't think I want to send them to college. I think I want to give them their college money and have them start businesses and or be investors in businesses because that's the way they're going to actually be able to get, um, you know, to a sustainable lifestyle. I actually don't think coming out of college in debt makes any sense. So that's why I wrote the book. I mean, I, I grew up. Um, fearful of terrorized, perhaps, of being poor and not having money. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's followed my career knows that I've had a a kind of drive in me um, that might have from the outside looked, you know, um, uh, unabashed or desperate or Intense, uh, depending on if they're a fan of mine or not. And yeah, what was
2: your what was your childhood like? I mean, I know you you, you mentioned you grew up and you said in the book you grew up in Brooklyn before it was cool, and I believe your your dad owned was a bar owner.
3: Yeah, my dad owned two bars when I was growing up. The first one was called Beards, and the next one was called Beards Cafe, and they were bars with little cafes in them. And in the eighties, mm. um, he got himself in trouble after the financial uh, after the Wall Street uh, collapsed in eighty seven and eventually the business um, through a series of missteps and bad luck not all his fault not all not his fault um, Mm. got taken away by the feds and the tax collectors because he he couldn't keep up with his tax payments and you know basically when I was 17 years old I was faced with the possibility my dad sat me down like I might be going to jail you know and uh, the business is gone and this is the Yeah, this is four weeks before I was going to start college and go to Brooklyn College. And I was trying to figure out if i go to Mm -hmm. Brooklyn College or Fordham. And I said I wanted to go to Fordham. And he said, I wish I could help you pay for school, but you're on your own. I'm sorry. I failed you. It was a very, like, heady moment for a 17-year-old. Yeah, it's
2: tough. Yeah. Yeah. For For anybody.
3: For anybody. And so I'm sitting there going, wow, my dad might go to jail. My family has nothing. My mom's working five jobs. They're in debt. The credit card bills are mounting. And I'm starting school in four weeks. And so I worked five jobs. I decided to go to school at night. Uh, I got the bursar at Fordham to agree, and, the, and literally the dean to agree to put me on a payment plan that I was always six mm-hmm. months or a year behind. But I hustled my way into talking to the dean, into literally floating me. And I would pay them three or four hundred bucks a month in cash for my $9,000 a year in tuition.
2: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
1: This podcast is brought to you by Braintree. When it comes time to check out, consumers have come to expect a wide range of payment options, or to be more accurate. There are a wide range of consumers out there, and every one of them expects you to offer their preferred payment method. You can look at this as a hassle, but Braintree would suggest you look at it as an opportunity. When you rethink your payments, it's easy to let your customers have it their way. With Braintree, rethink payments. Find out more at BraintreePayments dot com slash Forbes.
2: Well, what kind of jobs did you do on the side? You said five jobs.
3: Yeah, it was interesting. My, I, I had a, I had the the most promising job was I fixed laser printers in 1988. So laser printer, and I worked in Fordham's um, until I got fired. I worked in Fordham's computer lab, making three fifty an hour, which was minimum wage. I worked as what's called a bar back on the weekends, which is the bartender's assistant. You carry up buckets yeah. of ice and beer from, you know, 7 PM until, you know, we would do after hours in Bay Ridge. So the bar would close officially at four, but it would go to six and we would illegally serve beer and whatever off the books until six.
2: Well, I hope you got, I hope you got some free beer for your efforts.
3: Well, basically I would make 60 bucks in cash, 70 bucks in cash. You would, you would get 10%, 50, 20, 10 to 20% of what the bar Tender made, So if they made three or four hundred bucks in tips, you would get thirty, forty bucks. You get ten percent of that. And then the bar would give you, um, like four dollars an hour, five dollars an hour. So you worked hard, you yeah. get thirty, forty bucks. So it was, it was, it was off the books and it was cash. So that's seventy bucks a week, you know, hundred fifty bucks a week. I would be able to put all those singles and five dollar bills into an envelope and I would literally go to the bursar with cash. And the women in the bursar would laugh at me. I'd show up like I was Tony Soprano with an envelope except instead of $100 bills it would be literally fives and singles that I had just you know pulled together um, but you know the fixing of the laser printers was really the entry into computers and I went from fixing laser printers to installing servers to installing uh, to, well to installing Ethernet cards, Ethernet cables, servers, then architecting the software and eventually I wound up at Amnesty International working for Sony another time and making 60000 dollars a year in 1991-92. So I realized like very early on, Jesus, wow, when you network computers together, it's powerful. And I built the first local area network at Amnesty International and worked on the network at Sony Music. And that's when in 1995, I decided networks are going to be big. CD-ROMs are going to be big. I'm going to start this magazine called Silicon Alley Reporter. And it was a photocopy Mm -hmm. magazine and it quickly grew from a 16-page photocopy to a 300-page glossy with $12 million a year in revenue. I had 70 people working for me and I did it on my credit cards kind of- how
2: you how would you go from you know literally swinging slinging beers to installing um, you know networks to you know jumping at the media yeah. well how did you make those jumps
3: well I had a computer when I was growing up and that was probably one of the key moments so as much as my dad um, you know sort of screwed things up when I was 17 he, he uh, god bless his soul when he when i was 12 he bought me an ibm pc jr which he bought with a thousand dollars in cash from the bar the night before so he literally drove mm-hmm. me to manhattan the next day and we bought a computer and that computer taught me how to use software and how to use printers and all this stuff so when i went to fordham they were looking for people in the computer lab and i knew more about pcs so i was a what was called a micro pc specialist in the late 80s because mm-hmm. PCs had just come out and computing was separated between mini computers and mainframes and this new category called micro PCs. Uh, And so I was a micro PC specialist, eventually a PC specialist, eventually just somebody who worked on computers. But um, I worked for 350 in the computer lab and they fired me because I had partitioned a hard drive uh, without telling anybody. And I stored a bunch of video games on it. (laughs) So I got fired. But anyway, because I was so good at, fixing things and I was always ahead on PCs I um, I just kept going from 350 to 650 to $10 an hour when I went to Amnesty International because I had just seen a job listing at Fordham for Amnesty International for a PC support specialist and they were right down the block on 26th and 8th Avenue in Manhattan from Fordham which was at Lincoln Center and um, I started working at Amnesty and they just needed somebody to put their computers into a network and I knew how to do everything from working at Fordham and so I was saving them a ton of money. They didn't have to hire a consulting firm. I knew how to do it all. So I just did it for them for 10 bucks an hour. So they were like, they they were broke too. They had no money. Yeah. <laughs> so they were a non- starving so- <laughs> nonprofit. And then I, I used to ride the subway. And, you know, from Brooklyn, I would take the R train or the N train or the B, the rarely and the never. And I was obsessed with power and money because I had none. And uh, when I would see Spy Magazine and Vanity Fair and Rolling Stone and Paper Magazine. I would look at these Mm -hmm. magazines and I'd say, wow, I wonder how you get on the cover of the magazine. And so I'd buy them and then I'd see the masthead and the masthead to me was amazing. I'd say, wow, there's all these people who work on this magazine. How do you get to the top of the masthead? And that was my like my next big insight in life, which was if I had a magazine and I was at the top of the masthead, I would pick who was on the cover. And if the people on the cover Mm -hmm. were important, how important were the people who picked the cover? In my demented mind, well, Jan Wenner was more important than Bruce Springsteen because he put Bruce Springsteen on the cover, or you know David Hershkovitz was more important you know than Chloe Sevigny because he put her on the cover I, I, or you know Fernandes. i
2: like as an edit as a magazine editor, I like the way you think
3: so I started the magazine as a sixteen page photocopy because I had seen. There was a zine movement, Z-I-N-E, which young people don't understand and you do. But zines were a big deal in the 90s, early 90s, because there, were just, there was no web. So the way young people got their words out was they printed a photocopy and they sold it in Tower Records. Tower Records, people don't know, it was a store that sold records and CDs and magazines. But they also had a zine section. So you'd have these you know, 200 zines, which were from around the country, and they were typically Twenty six hundred was one of the zines, which was about hacking. They were just self published magazines, like. blog.
2: So those are the first. Those are the paper, the analog blogs, I guess. They
3: were. That's exactly what they were. Which it's no coincidence I started weblogs, Inc. and gadget, Autoblog, joystick, and sold that for thirty million dollars because all it was was eighty five zines put in a collection in one common publishing platform, uh, which was my big hit, uh, you know, in terms of making my first big payday. Um, and so, you know, I just I, I think. In a way, I hustled my way through my own fear of being poor uh, and just the fear of failing like my dad had and you know, having just this tragic you know, collapse. It, it just put a, a fear and an anger and a drive, really primarily a drive in me that I don't think was healthy and or typical, but that drive is what just led me to believe that I just had to stay up all night and work seven days a week to try to create something in the world. And really the book is for me, I'm just hoping, you know, if hundred thousand people read it or 250,000 people read it, that 1% of them, uh, you know, one or two or 3000 actually go become angel investors. And that some portion of them, maybe 10% do it so well that they change, you know, from whatever station they are in life and they move, they jump two ahead, right? Like I did, mm-hmm. uh, or three ahead or four ahead. And to me, that would be success.
2: You mentioned before you, you said you, you had three daughters, and you want to give them the cash instead of college to be founders or investors, and you want people to read this book and become angel investors. Like, is the founder game an angel game for everyone, or is it a you know does it take someone with your kind of with that drive you mentioned, or someone who's really risky to do this?
3: Um, I would say everybody's capable of it, but not everybody would want to do the level of work required. But I do think that being a founder is extremely hard and being an angel is extremely easy when it comes to the effort uh, Mm -hmm. and when it comes to the risk profile. So when you're an angel investor, you're investing in, let's call it, 30, 40, 50 companies over two, three, four years. And you're going to manage those 30, 40, 50 investments, hopefully have enough diversity that you uh, can hit a winner, um, an outsized winner, something that pays 25 to one. 50 to 1, 100 to 1. So if that happens, uh, you'll be way ahead of the game. But if you're a founder, you're investing in one company over five years, and the likely scenario, 70, 80, 90% of the time, these early stage companies fail. So if two out of three times, if we're generous, two out of three times they fail, one out of three times they have a positive outcome, you've got to do three companies. And if they each take five years Mm -hmm. or seven years, you know that's basically half of your Adult life, right? If you have a 40-year career, you're going to spend 15 years trying to build these three companies. So all your eggs are in three baskets—one, two, or three baskets—and it's not easy. Um, you have to have a lot of energy, and you're you're in a competition now. When you're angel investing, you're basically investing in 20, 30 companies, putting a little bit of money into each, maybe as little as a thousand or two thousand dollars into each, and then picking your three or four biggest winners and plowing another ten or twenty-five thousand into each. So even with a small chip stack, 100,000, 250,000, I think you can do it. And if you have a bigger chip stack, say 500,000 or a million dollars, you can do it quite effectively. And you can can dabble in angel investing to start, to learn. And the premise of the book really is, if you were to put 5% of your net worth into this, maybe upwards of Mm -hmm. 10, maybe as little as two or 3%, but let's just call it one, let's call it two to 10%. If you were to lose it all, But you got to invest in 30 companies, got to spend time with them, and you got to spend your time interviewing and talking to the most creative, powerful people who wanted to define the future and were the most creative and interesting people. My gosh, what an amazing life that is. I can tell you it's an amazing life. And you learn a lot and you build a huge network. So... I would say almost anybody considering going into the an MBA program and spending 150 to 250,000 you will get much more value investing that money in startups in Silicon Valley specifically over mm-hmm. 2 or 3 years. It will even if you lose 100% of it because when you when you get a degree you're basically losing all that money and getting a piece of paper and hoping that piece of paper then creates some amount of wealth and extra advantage and maybe the network. The network of angel investing in, of entrepreneurs is much better than any business school network, hands down. Plus
2: you have- And you mentioned- you know, Yeah,
3: plus you could also, sorry, go ahead. Plus you could also hit a lottery ticket, right? So <laughs> there's no chance of your $150,000 going to Stanford or Harvard or Penn or Fordham or NYU's MBA program, there's no chance that that returns 1.5 million or 15 million, right? That's impossible. Well, it's not impossible in angel investing. In fact, it's probable that you'll hit some investments that- Give a decent return if you're doing it in the right location with the right stage companies.
2: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
1: Introducing an all new crossover Toyota CHR, embrace the unexpected. It's edgy and effortlessly takes center stage with its distinctive style and unique spirit. Agile handling helps show off its athletic side with a driver-focused cockpit that helps keep you in command, whether you're cruising through the city or taking on your favorite winding road. Uniquely expressive, CHR's precision cut lines let it shine from every angle. Born from the ingenuity of a race car driver, CHR is designed to maximize driving pleasure every time you turn the wheel. Know that while you embrace and express that bold spirit in the smartest way possible, tucked away neatly throughout your CHR are advanced safety features and measures that are designed to help keep you alert and safe in the event of an accident. Because as any good driver knows, accidents can happen. And when it comes to driving, the best defense is a smart offense. Visit Toyota.com C HR to learn more. Drivers are responsible for their own safe driving. Always pay attention to your surroundings and drive safely. Depending on the conditions of roads, weather, and the vehicle, the systems may not work as intended. And this podcast is brought to you by Braintree. If you think that your payment system exists solely for the purpose of transferring money from a customer's wallet to yours, think again. Braintree, rethink payments. Learn more at BraintreePayments dot com slash Forbes.
2: And you mentioned, I mean, people always said, you know, the the, the you know, good way to get wealthy. As an angel investor is to be wealthy to begin with, and you mentioned that you know a hundred thousand dollars if that's five percent of your wealth, well, then you're pretty well off to begin with sure um, so I, so how did this like if how if you were twenty two years old you know hustling in Bay Ridge, how would you get your start because you have to be an accredited investor, sure. you have to also have a a, a real time job, so to speak like how do you get into this if you're just starting out or yeah. you need to change up your life
3: so I think you can dabble in it now two different ways. The first way is there's a new thing uh, called equity crowdfunding and there are websites like Seed Invest, Republic and others that are doing and I think Indiegogo is now doing it where you can actually put a small amount of money in $100, $500, $1,000 and be able to uh, have equity in a company and you can be non-accredited. There's also the ability um, to be a micro angel if you have some accreditation. Uh, and put a thousand dollars to twenty-five hundred dollars into a company via AngelList or SeedInvest uh, through what's called AngelList syndicates, which is, you know, someone like myself or Tim Ferriss or, um, you know, um, Gil Pinchina are investing ten or twenty-five thousand in a company, and we say, anybody want to come along with us? There's a minimum investment size of two thousand dollars, and fifty people come along with us. We put another hundred thousand into the company. So those syndicates exist. And that's a brand new – these are brand new things that have existed, the equity crowdfunding for less than a year and the syndication concept for, call it, five, six years maybe. Um, so these are brand new devices that let you sort of dabble. But there are other ways for you to get on a cap table, and one of them is being an advisor. And obviously working on a startup is another way to get equity in a startup. But advisors or people who trade services for equity um, are very, very uh, – uh common, so before I had money as an angel investor and before I was accredited, I did four or five um, uh, advisorships where I would trade my ability and my knowledge in marketing, blogging and content marketing, and my network in exchange for a small amount of equity in a company, a quarter point, half a point, even a point in some cases, and in four out of like seven cases, and I outlined mm-hmm. them in the book. It returned some meaningful amount of money. Uh, so mm-hmm. being an advisor, trading something you're good at for equity. So if you were a journalist and you're in year five of journalism, you could literally say, hey, listen, I write for, you know, uh, the New York Times or I write for paper magazine, whatever it is uh, or, Forbes. or Forbes. You I write for Forbes and then you can say to somebody, I'll write your CEO's blog and you tell the CEO, I'll write your blog for you. Or i'll edit your blog for you i'll be your ghostwriter, or i'll write content marketing for you normally i would charge four dollars a word and so your 800 word piece would normally be three thousand dollars instead of three thousand dollars i'll do this ten times a year for you that's thirty thousand dollars i'll take five thousand in cash and twenty five thousand dollars in equity at the seed valuation which is a quarter point or a half a point point. and now you're friends with the ceo you're talking to them about hey how do we want to represent ourselves in the world what should our thought leadership blog post be you're riffing with the ceo of a company so these are the kind of hacks that you can do let's say you're a sales executive at a software company you could say to somebody who's starting a company hey you don't have a sales executive but i will teach you how to hire sales people i'll write all the emails for you and i'll teach you what we're doing at this big company on the dl on the qt nobody needs to know give me you know 50 basis points over two years vested monthly every month i get 150th of it and I will coach your salespeople. I'll listen to their phone calls. I'll edit their emails for them, and I'll coach them. And I'll just do that for you know 10 hours a month for you. And you know I'll moonlight and just get me some equity. Now you let's say that works and you make 10 grand or 50 grand or 100 grand. Now you parlay that into micro investing, and all of a sudden you're on your way. Mm-hmm. So there's all different ways to hustle it. I like to tell. Is that how
2: you hustle? Is that how you hustle as an advisor? What what, what kind of skills did you bring forth yeah, uh, when so you guys started?
3: Because I was a journalist and I had created a bunch of brands, people perceived that I understood blogging, that I understood this nascent thing called social media. And I certainly understand, understood how to get attention and do PR. So they, they had the sense that like, if Jason can get attention for what his projects are, whether it was Silicon Valley reporter or weblogs, Inc., mm-hmm. He could advise me on interesting ways to do marketing so it was really you know at the end of the day content and marketing or content marketing which there was no term for content marketing back then but i would just teach people how to you know here's a good thing for you to write about in this magazine if you did a column here's a good thing here's some uh technique for getting interviews with publications here's a good way to you know bait uh, competitors into fighting with you publicly and getting press, right? So it's a hmm. combination of PR and content that I knew, but you could be sales, you could be design, you could be a developer. All of these firms are willing to trade uh, when they have less cash equity for services. So there's a longstanding tradition of you know, bootstrapped and small startups trading equity for consultants, uh, and those things could go big if you choose to do it. The thing I like to point out to people is the average American spends four hours a day watching television and the average home spends the 125 or 150 bucks on their cable bills. So if you put those two things together and you just stop watching TV, uh, which I know is hard given how great TV is right now, uh, but for years I didn't watch any TV or even read books or do that weren't trade books to get myself ahead of my competitors. And I think you have to have some level of self discipline if you want to beat out the other people who are trying to win at this game. So what I've told people who are young in their career is, stop with the television, and the video games, whatever it is that you're via social media. Capture, recapture those three or four hours a day. Uh, and then get rid of your cable bill. <laughs> you can't recapture that $2,000 a year. And now you've, reca- and then you could take that time you had and either do consulting, drive an Uber, <laughs> whatever it is to make a little bit of cash, Recapture that two thousand dollars a year that you're spending on your cable bill, and I know it's, you know, people need some downtime or recreation time.
2: I know. I was like, we still go to bars.
3: I think it's that's definitely still in the cards. Um, but okay, good. good. Yeah, I would, but I would definitely go to a dive bar and I would go during happy hour. But, you know, listen, I'm not saying you have to live like a monk, but I do think that in America we're very soft. You know, I I I see entrepreneurs from other parts of the world. I see them come here, and I have entrepreneurs from Hong Kong. Uh, from South America and uh, everywhere in between. And when I see them come to America, they work the standard startup hours from their country, which is 9, 9, six. Nine 9, 6. 9 a.m. to 9 a.m. six days a week are the standard six hours, week, huh? six days a week. People get in the office at nine, they leave at 9 p.m., 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., okay. six days a week. Now, listen, I, I know people want to believe in balance. I know there's a whole millennial thing, like, hey, we're, trying to have all these great experiences but what you have to realize if you want to have outsized returns you're going to have to put in an outsized effort so it it does seem like things get easier as you go we do live in the greatest country in the world but we live in this incredible country of opportunity but as time has gone on people want more leisure and people want to put in less effort and get more returns and that's incongruous to what happens in the real world so i see a lot of young people who start companies and then they're at three different TEDx conferences a year, they're going to Web Summit, Summit at Sea, all these things, and they're paying thousands of dollars to go hang out with a bunch of other millennials and listen to whoever you know from you know some B-list celebrity talk about you know technology and how it's going to change the world, and they all get to high-five each other and kumbaya, whatever. But the truth hey, is- I've
2: gotten some great—I've gotten some great stories at I've gotten great stories at Web Summit and Summit at Sea in the past.
3: Yeah, people puking overboard and passing out on the dance floor—it's just nonsense. <laughs> the fact is, like this group, this cohort of people who are doing that, they've seen real entrepreneurs go bust their ass, and you know, then they see them at you know, whatever the real TED as opposed to the TEDx, you know, nonsense, or they've seen them at Davos instead of the nonsensical Web Summit, or they see them go to Necker Island for something. After they've made all their money and then they go, like, oh, I'm going to go to Summit and see All these things are just bullshit to, you know, prey on insecure young founders and take their money, right, to make them feel special. The fact is what should make you feel special as a young founder an angel investor is doing the work, not reaping the rewards. The rewards come later. If your company is not profitable, if you have not reached profitability as an angel investor, you have no business going to any of these conferences or nonsense.
0: We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details U.S. only. Guys, it's Richard Blaze and I'm Jasmine Blaze. Listen, we got a new show coming out every week with Podcast One. It's called "Starving for Attention." Get an entertaining behind-the-scenes look at the world of food with me, chef, television personality, and author.
2: And I'm here to make sure he behaves himself and doesn't make up any words.
0: I make up lots of words, and we're going to be talking to anyone and everyone in the culinary industry, including restaurateurs television hosts, famous chefs, producers of your favorite cooking and competition
3: shows and more. Here's some spontaneous back of house conversation about what it takes to make it in different parts of the food business, global trends and where the industry overlaps with entertainment.
2: Plus play along with our games, trivia and other wacky moments.
0: You're going to get hungry for more or possibly terrified to go to restaurants. Either way, we're going to have some fun, whether you like it or not. Pull up a seat every Tuesday on podcast1.com, the new podcast1 app. Or subscribe on Apple Podcasts.
1: FreshBooks is a ridiculously easy-to-use cloud accounting software for small business owners that saves you time and gets you paid faster. Now used by over 10 million people worldwide, for your 30-day free trial, go to freshbooks.com/forbes and enter "interview" in the "How did you hear about us?" section.
2: But should you use some of these, like some of those you mentioned? I mean, there are some parties, but also I I know a lot of people um, who have made some really interesting founder connections at some really choice, you know, summits. Not saying you should spend you know, every week going to them, but nonsense. are there some? No, even but- if they have
3: stumbled into a couple of relationships, the truth is, you would have been much better off doing a meeting in a conference room and talking for an hour without thumping electronic music or you know, whatever it is, you'd be much better off doing one-on-one meetings targeted with important companies. You could do 10x the amount of efficiency. The only reason really to justify a conference is if it's going to directly get you customers. So if you're making legal software and you go to a legal conference, if you're making software for teachers and you're going to an education conference, like that's, you can totally quantify the ROI. But the fact is, it's much better to do the meeting at Phil's With an investor talking to them directly having 100 percent of their attention and not at these you know much more expensive that's going to cost you you know eight dollars in coffee and going to these things cost eight thousand dollars in tickets and travel and stuff like that so just look at it dollar for dollar it's nonsensical there are you know listen if you're successful you sold the company and or you have a profitable company sure blow off some steam Go, go to Coachella, go to EDC, you know, go play in the World Series of Poker like I do, sure. You know, do a, take a victory lap. But when I was young, I, I, I the only thing I would ever do is i lobby crash the E-Tech conference or Esther Dyson's mm. conference. I would literally sit in the lobby with my laptop working, hoping to run into people, but I would never pay for the tickets. It was pretty embarrassing uh, for me uh, looking back on it, but you know, people found it annoying/charming slash as a hustler, but <laughs> I just think young people have it wrong. They want to reap the rewards. They want to, you know, take high fives and victory laps before they've actually had a victory. And a lot of them will sell their companies, return 50 cents for investors and pretend like it was some huge success. And it's like, you, you lost your investors money and now you're writing blog posts about, you know, and starting podcasts about your success. But having been on the other side as an investor in these companies, and they lost 80 cents on the dollar and it was an acqui and they're, you know, patting themselves on the back for losing their investors money it's like what you know like, get back to work <laughs> um
2: speaking of work what is your schedule like are you i mean you have a lot of different irons in the fire are you a 996 guy yourself
3: yeah i i have kids now so that definitely throws uh, a big wrinkle in it uh when you get older and you have kids i'm 46 now um and i've listen i've, I've been really successful and don't need to work anymore So when you get to a certain point, if you've got enough money to never work again, one of two things happens. You can do what Chris Saka did and call in rich and retire like he just did for the second or third time. (laughs) And he's like –
2: You think he's he's going to reemerge soon?
3: I think he's going to do some things that are interesting to him but that are less about technology and less about investing. (laughs) So he claims no politics. But – Um, I don't think he'll run for office, but I could see him doing other things that are political related. And, you know, I think he's had a good time being a personality on things like Shark Tank. So I have a feeling he'll pursue some of those things. So I appreciate that. Most investors, when they hit massive success, just say, I'm done. Because what's the, if you've made a certain amount of money, there really is no difference. I have a, a lot of friends who are very affluent. And, you know, the difference between somebody with 100 million, 500 million, a billion, 10 billion there's really no difference like you can fly private or you can fly first class it really doesn't matter you can go anywhere you want and as Mm -hmm. i tell people like you know if mark cuban and i and elon musk all eat a hamburger it, it tastes the same to all of us like there's no difference between the hamburger and there's only so many hamburgers with frog raw or whatever kobe hamburgers like once you eat the third $40 Forty dollar hamburger. You're like, well, I kind of feel like an idiot for paying forty bucks for a hamburger. And it's not really that much better than the In and Out burger or the Five Guy yeah. burger, or whatever it is. So, yeah, you, yeah, your your uh, your
2: beer tastes just as good as the uh, you know the president's beer, as they say.
3: Exactly. And so, people, I think, you know, and, and and to be honest, a lot of the people I see get this kind of really big wealth. I mean, this whole concept, more money, more problems. It is one hundred percent true. They buy four or five houses, they buy a plane, and now they've got this like crazy. Um, you know, nut that they 've got a hit every month to you know yeah. pay their hundred thousand dollars in living expenses every month you 're like, why are you doing that yourself you You just introduce another level of anxiety, so i don 't get it maybe it 's because I grew up so poor. What yeah. I kind of value is not having anxiety and not having to worry, so I always try to live well below my means. but to your original question i've defined how I want to work now. One of the things I don't like to do is negotiate contracts and you know legal and spend time with lawyers going over the finer legal points so i just said here's how i like to do deals i hired a chief of staff i said here's how the deals go down if it's in this range it's acceptable if it's outside of this range i just need to be told and if it's in this kind of range it's just we don't do that and so i just sort of set it up and i said you know every time somebody sends me legal documents or a founder wants to debate the legal stuff i said yeah talk to my chief of staff you guys can come to some kind of arrangement, I'm sure, based on what's important. Yeah. And if you need to, sure, of course, you can loop me in and I'll just give you my, my general feedback. But I divorced myself from that and just said, let somebody else do it. I, I don't want to have to take meetings early in the morning. So I just told my assistants, like, you know, I'll, my first meeting should be 11 o'clock, you know, or, you know, noon, because in the morning I like to read. I like to make the, my mm-hmm. daughter's breakfast. So you can kind of, if you get successful, you define what you want your life to be. I like to work on the weekends too. I don't like to work 12 hours a day, 18 hours a day anymore. I like to do a little bit of work every day. So I just, you know, with my wife said, hey, I'm gonna take the kids for this period of time. And then I wanna read and do some writing for this couple of hours. So that'll be my work hours on the weekend. And this is my downtime. So what you need to do is define what success is for you. And if you are successful, then you should look at, what do I actually enjoy? What I enjoy is meeting with founders, Jamming out riffing with them about how to grow their companies and writing and doing my podcast. That's about it. So I try not to Mm -hmm. do anything else. Right. And I find like these people get successful and they're like, they keep doing the stuff they don't like to do. Well, what's the point of being successful if you can't take those things out of your life? Right.
2: Um, And you found a way to kind of have, you know, your lifestyle and your business are the same thing right now. So it's kind of your form of fun, but you can actually make a living off it, which is a a great combo to have.
3: Anybody who listens to This Week in Startups, my podcast, understands I'm having a great time doing it. I'm like a massive extrovert. I'm ENTJ on the uh, Myers-Briggs. Like, I'd love to talk, as you can tell from this podcast. and Conversation. (laughs) I love to have conversations. So my podcast is – I would do my podcast anyway – it would be called lunch. It'd be called a long lunch. So doing it twice, people are like, oh my God, you do your podcast twice a week. You must be exhausted. I'm like, when I get out of the podcast, I'm inspired and I have twice as much energy as when I started. So that's one of the things about introverts versus extroverts. Introverts, if they go have a couple of conversations, they're exhausted. They need to be alone and process them. Extroverts, they have a couple of conversations. They're inspired. They want to have more and they want to just do more work and you know, it's, you have to know yourself, right? And so for people who are introverts, that's okay. You need to understand like you're gonna, if you're gonna go do some public appearance and shake hands, make it a 20 twenty minutes at the party, not two hours, because you're gonna get to two yeah. hours, you're gonna be exhausted, right? And you're gonna resent it. So just understand who you are, right? I
2: think and speaking so, of this break, yeah. yeah. Sorry, go ahead.
3: No, I just I, I think it's one of those things that you learn in the second half of your life. In the first half of your life, you're just spastic and trying to get something going. Like I was, right? I was, you know, knocking shit over left and right, and people were like, "What is that guy doing?" What I'm he's. I mean, I'm sure some people are like, "That guy's a mess," you know. Like, but I was just trying to hustle to get something going. I just wanted to, yeah. I just wanted to be famous or rich or powerful, and or not be not famous, rich or powerful, or just try to get one of those three things going. Because um, you know, my in my warped mind, I just thought, God, if I don't become powerful or famous or you know influential or rich you know, I'm going to be like my dad. I'm going to be stuck. You know, I'm going to be going to jail or I'm not going to be able to take care of myself. Um, So, you know, life deals you a set of cards and I think it defines who you are. And then once you have some success, you get to define who you want to be, right? And and you get to define your life yourself in a more premeditated way. That's why I kind of admire what Chris is doing in in quitting, uh, you know, angel investing. He gets to pick, you know? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
1: Here at the Forbes interview, we know that creating great things sometimes comes down to having the right support system. That's why we're excited to have WordPress.com as a sponsor. They've been supporting us behind the scenes for a while as home to Forbes blogs. We use WordPress.com every day, and let me tell you, whether you're looking to create a personal blog, a business site, or both, you'll make a big impact when you build your website on wordpress.com. Even if you don't have experience building a website, WordPress can guide you through the process. They have hundreds of themes to get you started. Just pick a template and make it your own. You'll get built-in search engine optimization and social sharing. When you build your website on wordpress.com, you're part of a community with support 24-7 when you need it. Come see why more websites run on WordPress than on any other platform. Get started today with 15% off any planned purchase. Go to com slash Forbes to create your website and find the membership plan that's right for you. That's com slash Forbes for 15% off a brand new website. com slash Forbes.
2: You mentioned those goals you had growing up and kind of striving for, uh, you know, to be rich and successful. And now you've hit those. Does it how's it like is it is it worth it is it better than you thought or is it just the fear of is it the fear getting away yeah. no
3: it's amazing trust me like this whole idea like it's not about the money and you know getting rich is not like important is complete utter bullshit and that's propaganda by people who've made a ton of money and don't want anybody else to go do it i meet people all the time where just like oh, i don't do this for the money and it's like your title is venture capitalist like you don't do it for the money go work for a nonprofit yeah. then right you can make as much impact like your literal title is venture capitalist you're a capitalist it's in your title of your job like don't tell me it's not about the money your job <laughs> yeah, is a, little a capitalist title. i mean that's like somebody's title is pirate and they're like yeah i'm not in it you know for the money it's like but you're a pirate <laughs> like,
2: yeah you're you're a burglar what do you mean you don't steal like yeah, that kind I, of thing
3: i am a i'm a cat burglar and i steal diamonds like but i'm not in it for the money it's like mm, but you are steal diamonds <laughs> becoming independently wealthy and not having to work for a year or two, when that first happened for me and I had enough money in the bank to take off a year or two, I was like, oh my God, I have $250,000 in the bank. I had, I had a employment contract when I sold on a reporter, and they fired me when Dow Jones took the company over because they just didn't want me inside the, they didn't want an entrepreneur like me inside of Dow Jones, so they're just like, we're gonna give you your $125,000 a year salary for two years. In advance and I was going to buy out your contract I was just like oh my god I feel like I'm like Phil Jackson I got fired from the Knicks and they're going to give me my last two years or you know whatever kind of crazy situation where people get paid for not doing the work what would you do? Well that's when I started Weblogs in because I just sat there looked, yeah. I, would, I would it was so mind blowing to me that I would when I walked by an ATM even if I didn't need money sometimes I would just go check my balance it was like I, I just needed to check and look and at one point, the person at Bank of America was like, you have $250,000 in your checking account. Do you, do you want to open a savings account? I'm like, what's the difference? They're like, Well, you'll make 3% on that. I was like, 3% of $250,000. How much is that? Well, it would be like $6,000 a year. I was like, what? Oh, yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's half my rent. I mean, I was just – Yeah, free money. Looking back on it, I was so naive and just – i had no idea how any of this worked because i didn't it's not like my parents were rich or they they told me like hey here's how it works so i just had to stumble upon everything and so really the reason i wrote the book is because i stumbled into this you know I, I got lucky i stepped in it eight times and counting you know now i i just found out this morning one of my entrepreneurs emailed me and said guess what we 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 just closed our account of financing at a billion dollars so i was like oh you're my fifth billion dollar company in 130 or 40 investments I was like, who, who was it? I can't say yet, but it'll be coming out shortly. And, um, the last, I had this happen just six weeks ago when, you know, I read Robin hood had raised money from Yuri Milner at 1.3 billion. And I invested when it was a $30 million company. I was like, Oh, another 50 X, you know, like I'm hitting a billion dollar company now. And these are real substantial companies. This is not like fake billion dollar companies. These are companies that are real, you know, like yeah, it's not like we're in a hype cycle right now the, the hype cycle is my god these companies print money they have real revenue so you know if I hit one every 30 investments is what, what I'm averaging right now and if I hit another one it'll go down to 25 or 20 I'm like there, there's. I'm going to be the number one angel investor of all time which to me is like what I'm playing for I want to do 250 more investments to my 150 now I'll have 400 mm-hmm. investments and then I'll retire with 400 and, I put all the secrets in the book. Maybe I'll write a second book after I'm done with the next 250 investments. And I really want other people to read the book, get incredible deal flow, and then email me when they have a great investment. Let me draft off of them after they drafted off my learnings. And then I can get into the next cohort. So the I'm writing the book because I want to help people. But in truth, if I inspire a couple of hundred people to become real serious angel investors or a couple of thousand or who knows maybe 10,000 it's possible if it becomes a movement and 10,000 more people get involved in this and they say i read jason's book and that's why i'm here not own i mean those people might start emailing me and i say in the book like email me your deal flow and when we hit a unicorn let's go on your yacht and you know eat some lobster tails and surf and turf and, and we'll toast how what an amazing investor you are this is very self-serving on my part
2: yeah, it's not just a book. It's a way to kind of scale your whole operation or scale your, uh, yeah, your funnel.
3: That's exactly. And so when you talk about why do you want to do it, one, I felt like I was an expert. Two, I really do want to see people change their station in life. Um, and three, I want to put out a network that's never existed before of 10,000 angel investors around the world who I got in the game. If I'm the guy who got them in the game, they will always, always, always thank me and have, I'll have a special place in their hearts just like with entrepreneurs who I invest in their first round of funding do you think that entrepreneur is going to call me when they have a next company do you think they're going to call me when their company goes public or they're super powerful like i get my phone calls returned you know because i believed in people when they had 5 5 employees and nobody else would invest in them that's why i love angel investing you get to believe when nobody else does when i did the uber investment i, I tried to get 20 other people to do it and i was able to get two other people to do it. So 18 people wouldn't do it out of the 20 plus Mm -hmm. I syndicated it to and two did. When I meet those other 18 people who passed, they are like, they jump. When I'm like, I have a new company, like, can I meet them? You want to know what it is or what stage it is? (laughs) Like, no, 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 no. Just set up the meeting. Like literally they're just like set up. You got them hooked. Well, I mean, if you hit, you know, consistently four or five, you know, one unicorn every 30 investments, these other VCs like, I had one VC that I would send them, you know, entrepreneurs and this very high profile VC would then have somebody else in the firm meet with them. And I just told the VC, like, I'm not sending anybody anymore. He's like, what? I was like, yeah, if I send somebody, I want you to meet with them. He's like, well, how about you send me information on the company first before, and then I'll tell you if I want the introduction. And I said, you know what? No. This is like one of the five most powerful people in the industry. I said, nope, doesn't work for me. They were like, excuse me? I was like, yeah, you know, I kind of feel like if I send somebody, you should just meet with them. And I mean, this kind of sounds crazy, but I'm like literally dictating the terms to a billionaire investor who is one of the five most recognizable people in our industry. And he's just like, you're so difficult. And I'm like, you're so difficult. Go fuck yourself. Like, <laughs> what, what are we talking about here? I'm I'm the point guard. This is like, and do, they ta- do they take it? Let's just say it's it's a contentious relationship to this day. Um, I see. But I mean, I felt like I need to be contentious because if I'm the point guard and I'm bringing the ball up the court and you're Kevin Durant and, you know, I'm Steph Curry, I'm bringing the ball up the court and, you know, or whoever's bringing it up, Clay Thompson, whoever's bringing it up for the team at that point in time, I'm Chris Paul. I'm Chris Paul. You know, I'm known for bringing the ball up the court and passing it to people (laughs) so they can dunk the ball easily because I put it in exactly the right spot. And you want me to ask you before I pass you the ball? Just take the damn ball and put it in the basket. Right? And that's what like the other nine of the top 10 VCs do. And this one VC is just like, mm-hmm. thinks they're like the bee's knees and they think that they're it. And I'm just like, hey, you know, like, just meet with the founder. You're not that important. But this is what happens when people get like really rich. They start to get like in their own head and they start mm-hmm. to think like, that they they have this whole other set of rules for them. And I'm like, hey, um, can we just focus on the work here? The work is to invest in companies. So just take the damn meeting. Like it's not a big deal. I'm sending you five companies a year. Just take the take the stupid meeting. I'm not going to fight you. And, it's an
2: hour of your day, you know?
3: Well, and then, you know, the other crazy thing is like <laughs> with the same firm, I send them the company and they met with the, one of the founders for 25 minutes. The founder's like, "I flew up, Jason. The top dog didn't come to the meeting." They took a meeting for 25 minutes. The person didn't know who I was, how I was introduced to the firm, didn't know what I did. And they were, like, on their phone twice during a 25-minute meeting. meeting. I was like, wow, way to destroy your reputation, right? And that is one of the number one rules of life. Never get high on your own supply (laughs) and do the work.
2: (laughs) We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
1: A curious thing happened to FreshBooks on its way to becoming the largest cloud accounting software platform for small business owners in the world. As a company, they've managed to stay small while soaring to over 10 million users strong. Or is it the other way around? Has FreshBooks customer-based soared because their company has stayed small? Named as a small giant on Forbes' list of best companies this year, FreshBooks has been recognized for focusing on greatness over growth. By drastically simplifying tasks like invoicing, tracking expenses, and getting paid online, and delivering award winning customer service that usually picks up in under three rings, FreshBooks has changed how small business owners deal with their day to day paperwork. This is really only a fraction of what FreshBooks can do, and they want you to see more. To claim your 30 day free trial, no credit card required. Just go to freshbooks.com slash Forbes and enter interview in the How Did You Hear About Us section. And the Forbes interview is brought to you by WordPress.com. WordPress powers 27% of all websites, including Forbes blogs. Get 15% off your new website today at WordPress.com slash Forbes. That's WordPress.com slash Forbes.
2: Obviously, your biggest grand slam has been Uber. Sure. You know, Uber really put you on the map. Um, I think everyone knows what a tough time they're going through. What's kind of your take with Uber and Travis and.
3: Well, you know, every startup that hits this level of scale goes through a crisis and, you know, they typically have many of them, uh, especially when they're going through this sort of period where they go from a scrappy startup to a big one. I've never seen this many issues in a compressed period of time. So if you look Mm -hmm. at Facebook, like they had tons of, you know, Zuckerberg lined up the lawsuits with the Winkle boys and Eduardo and, just, you know, ones that Zuck had caused himself and other ones that were just opportunistic. But then they also had the $20 million fine and 20-year audit by the FTC. They, they just like all these controversies. But the controversy seemed mm-hmm. to be spread out over two or three years. It's never been six months of just, God, so many self-inflicted wounds. And so it's very frustrating when a company is just, absolutely a rocket ship and they're growing and then they just shoot themselves in the foot and everybody at uber from the board to the employees to travis and the management team they are well aware of what's at stake and how many stakeholders are in the company and they're well aware that they made mistakes and i you know as easy as it would be for me to sit here and say you know, and virtue signal. And I could write a big, long blog post and go on CNBC mm-hmm. and be like, this is terrible. And these these are mistakes. It's like, they're obviously mistakes. What I like to do, my choice as an investor is to work behind the scenes and say, how quickly and how efficiently and how deftly can we solve these problems and make sure they never occur again? And that's what, you know, I don't talk about that kind of work and I don't speak for the companies unless they give me the green light to, And in some cases, you know, they've given me the green light and other people have. So when you see me on CNBC, if I'm uh, commenting on Uber, I've cleared that mm-hmm. ahead of time. And I'm still honest. That I'm going to say what I'm going to say. But, you know, I told them like, hey, do you, is it okay if I talk about this? And they say, sure. If not, I just pass on commenting. So, you know, I think in this situation, they've really done something I've never seen a company do, which is we're going to do this like huge report. We're going to do this huge mm-hmm. investigation. And then we're going to make it all the recommendations public we're going to embrace the press we're going to embrace the team members we're going to get rid of the bad actors I mean they did this in a very public way which I think makes it even more intense because nobody's ever seen a company do a report like this right?
2: No and also and you mentioned like get rid of bad you know and you know the fact that Travis took a leave of absence I've never seen a founder do that Yeah, I think that Um, has to do
3: with his mom tragically dying more than this issue I think he would have Mm -hmm. If his his mom hadn't passed away, I think I'm not certain he would, wouldn't have been there to to sort of lead all this. I think he would have been. Um, but I think, you know, people, people really want to project into different leaders, what they want them to be or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, the fact is Travis is a great leader. He's a great person. And I think he's going to come back even stronger. And if you look at You know what happened with Steve Jobs when he left Apple, did next, and then came back. I kind of look at it like that kind of narrative where I think sure Travis has said he needs to improve as a leader. That's definitely true. He and he's working on that, and I think he's going to come back incredibly strong. And I think people will remember this sort of Travis 2.0, just like Mm -hmm. they remember the late Steve Jobs. Not maybe the early Steve Jobs, who maybe had sharper elbows and maybe did things impulsively or without as much consideration. And so I've known Travis for 15 years. Mm -hmm. Nobody I know who, when he focuses on something, when they focus on something, they don't absolutely crush it. Like he he is going to focus on these issues and he's going to take Uber from being like the, um, you know, the lesson of what not to do to being the model of what to do. I think the company is going to be the model of inclusion, the model of justice, the model of, you know, how to scale a company and build culture. I really, truly believe that because. Yeah, because, yeah, and, I
2: mean, you're a media guy. How, I mean, this, this you know, this everything with sexual harassment and, you know, discrimination, especially with against women, it's such a raw nerve and deservedly so as a media guy, how does Travis and Uber kind of get over that image and actually make real changes?
3: I I think you you nailed it there exactly, which is make real changes. And so adding more women to the board, adding more women to senior management, having more... The the company actually has done well on diversity. Actually, it's slightly ahead of their peers. Um, And so I think that's a good thing um, that they've done well, but certainly... You know, you see them adding a lot more women to meaningful positions of power and to the board, and that will, I think, take the company a long way. And so at this point, there is no, a company has a certain amount of goodwill, and then that goodwill gets spent, and then you have to earn every ounce of reputation. You have to rebuild the reputation of the company, and that's the process they're in. And I think that's why they've been public about it. It's like, hey, look, we understand we we made mistakes. We're going to very, very publicly address them in order to rebuild trust and to rebuild goodwill. Mm. And companies have done this in the past and they've done it successfully. So I, I, I think they're going to do it quite successfully. I think, the, the, and obviously, like the business, the, the crazy part about all this is, you know, when you're on a business level, the business is putting up numbers that are just extraordinary, that are just yeah. unprecedented. I mean, yeah,
2: revenue is incredible.
3: It, it's it's insane, you know. And and the and everybody wants to talk about how much cash they're burning. Well, that number keeps going down significantly. And so, when a company grows eighteen percent quarter over quarter on a very big number, you know, and they have three point four billion dollars in revenue in the first quarter or something like that, and they narrow the loss from a billion to seven hundred million, a billion dollars to seven hundred million, you're obviously seeing this company, you know, about to become profitable, you know, uh, and having revenues that are just compared to say snapchat which had 150 million in the first quarter they had 3.4 so they're 22 times bigger but we can't talk about that because of all these other issues and that's Mm -hmm. really the shame is like for all the stakeholders in the company and there are pension funds that have major stakes in the company there are employees who have their entire net worth in the company there are investors like myself who have a lot riding on it where there are investors with lps and those lps are retirements and endowments there's, there's a lot riding on this company and the company is performing extraordinarily so up and down the ranks of the company massive effort is being put in to put up extraordinary unprecedented performance and all of this you know all these self-inflicted wounds are distracting from that and that to me has to change and it is changing And we have to get back in the second half of the year to hey can we look at the fundamentals of this company and the progress they're making and how they've made transportation available to everyone you know when i lived in new york we couldn't get a cab to brooklyn a white guy mm-hmm. couldn't get a cab to brooklyn you would literally a white person would get in a cab to brooklyn and they would be like we're not going to brooklyn then if you were african american or hispanic they would cabs wouldn't stop for you let alone take you to brooklyn you if you were you know not a white person you, you couldn't get in a cab it was insane how unjust the the cab system was in new york it was nuts and in fact michael moore did a whole satire of it he literally put a person with like a machete on the street corner got picked up by a cab and then he put an african-american person in front of them and they didn't get picked up but they picked up the guy with the machete like it was insane um and now with you know uber you can go anywhere you want in any of the boroughs doesn't matter who you are the color of your skin all of that has been erased and the product is so much safer because they're tracking you minute by minute you rate the driver you rate the passenger, all the bad actors can be sorted out of the system. This is such an amazing product and service in the world, and it's helped us navigate cities. We never worry about getting from point A to point B, but that conversation is very hard to have when these other, you know, Distracting things are happening, and unjust no, yeah, things are it's, happening.
2: Inside, and not just in New York. Yeah, it's changing cities. It's changing small towns. It's yeah. it's making, uh, cutting down drunk driving. It's uh, it's it's making it's changing society. The whole ride sharing. Uh, so many you know,
3: virtuous economy. aspects of it. So that's what we. But how can you have that conversation if these other things are happening? You, you can't. And so you know, I'm, like I said, I'm 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 very hopeful. I'm obviously disappointed. I don't condone any of it, but I also don't want to sit here. And as a person who's on the team, who's a stakeholder, it's not helpful for me to virtue signal and try to get points for throwing my founder, who I believed in in the early days, and throw him under the bus, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's also not a helpful approach. I know other investors in the company have done that. I understand their perspective. I appreciate them, but I take a different approach.
2: I see. And Jason, you give us a lot of time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. One minute though, I'd love to talk about, you know, you, you know, your investing thesis is about, you know, making big bets on the future. Um, What are you seeing right now in the Valley along, not, not companies, but just trends, big changes. Like what are you seeing that excites you that might not be run of the mill that most people, you know, you ask everyone, they always talk about AI and AR and machine learning. I think robotics Robotics,
3: is um, had a couple of false starts. Um, But robotic – I have a company called Cafe X that is a robotic uh, cafe about the size of two Coca-Cola machines. It will make you a latte in 30 seconds. That's better than Starbucks and costs – Better than Starbucks? A third less. And you don't have to wait in line. And that company is going to change everything. then I have a company called Blockable, which is building housing, uh, modular housing with robots in factories. And you'll be able to build a home for the same price but in half the amount of time. And so mm-hmm. th- this is all being done by robots and, you know, their accessibility. So I would look for that. But I do have to jump. <laughs> so uh, maybe we do a you part two. You have a two. flight. I do. All right. All right. Well, uh,
2: Jason, th- thanks so much for joining us.
3: Okay. I'll talk to you soon. Cheers, mate.
2: That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. If you'd like to reach us, email us at interview at podcast1.com. Thanks for listening.
0: Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details U.S. only.